Welcome. This is Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock. I'm the host for this show. And you might notice this is a new time slot for Ocean Currents. We are now going to be on Mondays, one Monday a month, 1 to 2 p.m. And I'm looking forward to the new year bringing you new shows about related ocean topics to you. Um, Ocean Currents will dive into different topics about research, issues, management, natural history, and ways to get involved and learn more especially about the National Marine Sanctuaries along the Central California coast. You can catch archived shows or a podcast at the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary website at cordellbank@noaa.gov. That's C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K at N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. This show is kicking off a year of ocean awareness and education for residents of our coastal towns here in Point Reyes. The Point Reyes National Seashore, the Seashore Association, along with the Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuaries are collaborating on an ocean awareness campaign. There will be events and programs in our region to highlight the state and future of our marine ecosystems here. And it comes at an appropriate time when the California Marine Life Protection Act will be in full gear along our coast. So on today's show, we're going to talk just about that, the California Marine Life Protection Act. In 1999, The Marine Life Protection Act directed the state of California to design and manage a network of marine protected areas in order to protect marine life and habitats, ecosystems, marine natural heritage, as well as to improve recreational, educational, and research opportunities provided by the marine ecosystems on our coast. On our part of the coast for the past year, stakeholders, scientists, agencies, fishermen, fisherwomen, recreational users, And more folks have been at work making recommendations for how this should be carried out here. So today we'll be talking about the second phase of this process, which covers about 140 miles of coast from Alder Creek in Mendocino County to Pigeon Point in San Mateo County. The area south of Año Nuevo has a plan in place that has been adopted already. However, today I just want to focus a bit on the West Marin area, so West Marin, Coastline, and the Farallon Islands. So today I have a few guests that are joining me here in the studio and on the phone to give us an update on what's been accomplished to date, what's on the table now for these proposed areas, and how the rest of us can become involved and and learn what's happening. So let me introduce you you to them. On the phone I have Melissa Miller-Henson, who's the Program Manager for the Marine Life Protection Act Initiative within the state of California. Melissa, welcome. You're live on the air. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, Other guests today are part of the regional stakeholder group, part of a very long list of engaged participants helping to provide knowledge to this process. I have Irina Kogan, a resource protection specialist with the Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary, joining us by phone as well. Welcome, Irina. Thank you, Jenny. It's great to be with you. And in the studio, I have a very full house today. This is both phone lines, both seats. We're full here. Um, I have Tom Beatty, a local fishing enthusiast and independent sport fisher who knows these waters like no other. Welcome, Tom. Hi, guys. Let me get your mic on. Welcome, Tom. there. Hi, guys. (laughs) (laughs) And Fred Smith with the Environmental Action Committee of West Marin. Welcome, Fred. Thanks for having me. He's also been participating. So first, I'd like to start with Melissa. Let's give a little bit of background to listeners about this overall process. Can you give us a short overview of how the MLP PA, the Marine Life Protection Act, is being carried out. Sure. Um, As you indicated uh, in your introduction, the the Marine Life Protection Act is a piece of state legislation 
uh, that was signed into law in 1999 uh, directs the state essentially to um, redesign its system of marine protected areas. These MPAs were developed over um, 70 or 80 years with no particular uh, cohesion or uh, single goal or mission in mind. Uh, some of them, in fact, we couldn't even identify what exactly they were attempting to achieve. So uh, the legislation was passing. You need to take another look at this, redesign it, increase the coherence and effectiveness of that system. And so the state attempted to implement that piece of legislation uh, a couple of times in uh, early 2000s and uh, was unsuccessful for a variety of reasons, uh, most, probably most significantly from a lack of funding. And so Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, when he took office, uh, made ocean protection and uh, management of ocean resources a priority and uh, created a public-private partnership with funding from uh, several foundations to um, help uh, create what's called the M MLPA initiative. And our initiative is designed to help the state of California uh, implement this, this legislation. We, we aren't actually doing the implementing. We're not, uh, what we do does not have any uh, force of law or regulation. We are providing a public process to develop recommendations that then go to the California Fish and Game Commission. That's the, the final decision-making authority uh, for for MLPA. So uh, they will go through their own public process once we've completed ours. But in general, the uh, initiative started on the Central Coast, as you said, and is now moved in the second phase to the North Central Coast. We have three other study regions that eventually will also be uh, studied and redesigned. We have a number of different bodies that are involved in this process. We have a Blue Ribbon Task Force that oversees the process, a group of five individuals in this phase with uh, the tons of experience in, in addressing complex public policy issues uh, in a variety of venues. Advising that task force, we have a science advisory team, a group of 16 individuals who have um, varied uh, areas of expertise related to ocean and coastal uh, issues. And we also have a regional stakeholder group, as you uh, indicated. We have several of those folks on the phone. Um, overall, between primary and alternate members, we have uh, almost 50 people on that group helping to design, redesign the, the MPAs along the North Central Coast. And then we also have a statewide interest group, and, and this is a group of individuals also advising the task force um, that doesn't have a particular interest in any one study region. Their, their interests represent organizations that have interests uh, on a statewide basis. And then obviously an extensive public process, uh, lots of opportunities for public involvement and um, you know the public's ability to follow the process as we go along. The California Department of Fish and Game is uh, a partner in this initiative, uh, offering a number of staff actively involved in um, uh, assisting the task force and the regional stakeholder group and these other bodies, uh, but also playing an important role in helping to evaluate the proposals that, that come out of this process. Um, and as I said, again, what we develop are simply going to be recommendations to the state of California. The, the decisions that come out of the task force are, um, are not legally binding. They're advisory to the state. Our timeline, um, we have a number of meetings uh, coming up. Uh, most significantly, we're in the second of three rounds of developing MPA proposals. Um, we have a science advisory team meeting later this month to evaluate the, the second round of proposals. Uh, those evaluations and a, a DFG 
uh, Department of Fish and Game Feasibility Analysis will be uh, serve as the foundation for some public workshops that we're holding the first week of April. Be an opportunity for the public to come and uh, provide specific feedback on those proposals and and uh, hear what information has been provided by the science team, staff, and and uh, uh, Department of Fish and Game. And then in mid-February, the Blue Ribbon Task Force will then take all that information and provide feedback to the regional stakeholder group on, on those draft proposals so that the stakeholders can go back and then create the third and final iteration of those proposals, which then go back through that review process again by science advisory team, the public, uh, uh, Department of Fish and Game, and eventually it goes back to the Blue Ribbon Task Force in April for a for a final recommendation. So that's where we are. Wonderful. Thanks for that overview. How do each of these different groups interact? You have the science advisory team, um, proposals to the Blue Ribbon Task Force, and then the regional stakeholder group doing a, a lot of work. How do they each interact and share their information? Well, some of the information is shared by with summaries from staff, uh, but we do also have opportunities for direct interaction between those groups. So. The regional stakeholder group will actually, members of that group will be attending the science advisory team meeting at the end of the month. So as the science team uh, provides or, or shares with folks the, the evaluation of these proposals, there's an opportunity for direct dialogue between the stakeholders and the science team. And the same sort of thing will happen with the Blue Ribbon Task Force meeting. There will not only be a inter direct interaction between the regional stakeholder group members and dialogue with the task force, but we'll also have members of the science advisory team present to um, answer questions of the task force and, and obviously provide the evaluations uh, uh, directly. Wonderful. I have one quick another question before we move it around to the rest of the group. I was reading up a little bit on some of the, of the history of California's marine life protected areas, and it seems that um, areas that were designated after 1950 were implemented but reportedly poorly designed, placed, and managed. I'm curious, um, what have we learned from the past? What makes this time around different to have success? Well, I think the single biggest... <laughs> The single biggest factor is that we're not uh, designing a system of marine protected areas on an incremental piecemeal basis, mm -hmm. as opposed to someone identifying a particular location and saying, gosh, this is a great place, either you know, great fishing or great habitat, or it's in my backyard, I just think it's pretty, whatever the case may be. Uh, rather than that incremental approach, we're, we're taking a system-wide perspective. We're looking at how does the ocean ecosystem function? How do these different MPAs, and, and there are three different types of MPAs, how do these different types of MPAs interact and how can they contribute to the overall functioning of our ocean um, environment? And there are six specific goals that the Act lays out that we are to achieve with this, with this system of MPAs. Um, again, three types of MPAs. We have marine parks, marine conservation areas, and marine reserves, each having different types of activities that, that are or are not allowed. Wonderful. Thanks for that overview. So, Irina, the Gulf of the Farallones National Marine Sanctuary overlaps with much of the state waters in consideration of new marine protected areas. The sanctuary supports numerous recreational hotspots, wildlife observation opportunities, commercial and recreational fisheries. What does the sanctuary hope to see as an outcome of this process? Well, the, something that's very important to the sanctuary is that this process, it is such an important process, is fair 
and is an open community process that involves all the appropriate stakeholders, um, gets their input, has time for their input and their knowledge, and uses the best available scientific data. So those are the core things that are very important to the sanctuary. And that all of that is done to consider the special biological resources and hotspots of the region. So our, so our hope, and so that's basically our hope, is that the biological hotspots of the region are considered using, um, the, using input from the community as well as the best available scientific data. Wonderful. How do you interface with your constituents about the specific plan happening? I know the Sanctuary Advisory Council meets with the sanctuary often. Um, how have you been interfacing with the Advisory Council and other constituents about it? Um, so, yeah, we give uh, our Sanctuary Advisory Council is essentially um, a stakeholder advisory group. Um, they have uh, meetings um, every few months, and we are present at every meeting, and we give them updates at every meeting. Um, and uh, and we ask them for their advice, we ask them for their feedback, for their concerns, and we bring that information back to the um, to the stakeholders. Um, we are also the, uh, the, the only uh, NOAA agency on the stakeholder group, so one of the things we also do is we um, hold monthly conference calls with, at first it started out just being NOAA agencies, but then we've expanded it to include other federal agencies and to update them on the process, what's been going on, solicit feedback. Often these guys have um, technical information or other things that um, is very relevant that we can bring back to the process, um, and so we do that um, and we facilitate that communication. Great. How about Fred? Um, as a representative from the Environmental Action Committee of West Marin, how do you translate the diverse interests of your constituents as a representative on the stakeholder group? Well, I think <clears throat> I can't hear myself. <laughs> uh, the um, you know the Environmental Action Committee is ideally looking for um, a um, you know a really balanced plan that works for all the different interests involved in the ocean. I think that. There is a way to seek that sort of balance and to really protect really key core areas and nonetheless allow for lots of the activities that people like to do on the ocean. Uh, what I've been doing so far is I've actually, I think, printed five or six op-eds in the local papers in the last seven months, seeking feedback from <clears throat> different individuals in the community. I regularly contact my membership and receive feedback. I will be doing presentations before the, Point, the Village Association, Point Reyes, uh, the Tomas Bay Watershed Council, both of those will happen next month. And I also, I think, will hopefully be presenting before the Bolinas Boat Club as well in early March. And so ideally the goal is actually to really get out and outreach in the community as much as possible to try and find out the different types of uses and, and to get those little extra pieces of local knowledge that maybe weren't covered originally. But I think um, the, the key goal is to make sure that West Marin as a constituency is uh, considered. Have you been receiving feedback from... Actually, yeah, quite a bit. Uh, and in particular, of course, from the people who use the ocean the most. A uh, n- number of recreational fishermen and just a lot of members in general who are just really interested in seeing what's, what's going on with this process. And Tom, you're one of those local users. So you, how have you been participating in this process on the stakeholder group? Um, well, I'm an odd character in the stakeholder group because I have no constituency group. Um, I offered my services as someone with... Uh, extensive experience, both in the fisheries aspect of the the near waters, the near shore waters, but then also a fairly extensive background in let's maybe I should call it the lay science. So um, knowledge of the various species of birds, marine mammals, et cetera, that that uh, frequent these waters. So 
when I came forward, it was I um, very specifically said I was not going to be representing any specific group, and I was somewhat happily surprised, Melissa, that uh, you guys <laughs> you guys bit for bit on that offered bait and uh, <laughs> and um, allowed me to participate. Um, uh, one clarification, Melissa, which is, and I I think you probably just misspoke when you were. Uh, giving us your lead in, you mentioned that there were public uh, workshops scheduled for April, and I know that you know that that's going to be happening in early February. So um, just to make sure that all the listeners are aware that um, the first, well, actually, I'll, I'll let you tell the, the dates on those, but I just wanted to, to catch you on that one. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, I absolutely meant February. <laughs> Fourth, 4th, 5th, and 6th of February will be those public workshops. And and all of the information about our meetings and who's meeting when and where, that sort of thing, is, is all available on the, the MLPA website. Um, it's And I also want to mention here that we don't have the most diverse cross-section here on this interview today. We're missing quite a few different types of stakeholders that would be participating in this process, specifically um, commercial fishing. Um, I tried getting a couple of people, but they're hard to commit when Dungeness crab season is going on. <laughs> um, but uh, coming to that and the <clears throat> fact that we have such a variety of um, experiences of people with on-the-water knowledge or science knowledge, it seems that there could be a gap and perhaps some criticism between those with the intimate on-the-water knowledge from being on the ocean through the years, day in and day out, the level of data and science available that uh, we have about these habitats and ecosystems, knowing that the ocean is such an incredibly dynamic environment and difficult to study, and then the folks that are actually at the table making suggestions. And I'm curious how each of you handle these challenges when making these recommendations with such a variety of, of potential gaps. Does anyone want to comment on that? Um, let, let me jump in here, Jenny. Uh, I'm, I'm there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just as an example for, for the listeners, so it would give them a specific um, uh, example of what we're talking about. Right now, the marine habitats have been delineated by, at least in the case of the, the bottom structure, by sonar soundings. And because boats with sonars can only get in so close to the, the nearshore environment, there are enormous stretches of the coastline that we are considering closing that are just gray areas, that there is no definition in terms of whether it's sandy bottom, rock, uh, surf grass, whatever, and because of that, there's a and because when we put an area or when we suggest an area to be closed, um, that habitat is quantified by the number crunchers, the the, the brilliant guys that are on the GIS um, team that's working with us on this, so that they can give us a percentage of that habitat that has been protected. But when you have such a broad swath of area that is undefined, you will never – that's one of those big things that will fall through the cracks. And it makes it hard because those of us that are out there and who have taken our boats right up to the backside of the breakers know what we're looking at on the bottom. But because the GIS um, informational screens that we're using in this don't include that – it falls off the charts, and that's difficult. Mm -hmm. 
How about for this is yeah. Melissa? I just would like to add the the MLPA envisioned that in fact there would not be perfect knowledge <laughs> and perfect information about the ocean ecosystem in this uh, decision making process. And uh, you know, Tom gave a great example of, of one of those places where we you know we're lacking information. And so, a couple of things: one, our regional stakeholder group members and members of the public who do have that kind of localized knowledge, and and that's just one example of, of one issue has been absolutely invaluable to and, and is a necessary component of the process and, and was completely envisioned and, and one of the reasons why we have these regional stakeholder groups set up and, and this extensive uh, public process because the information isn't perfect and, and we really do need that local knowledge to, to come to play. And, and I have to just, I want to send out some kudos to our, our regional stakeholder group members because they have been absolutely fabulous um, and invaluable in this process of um, not only helping to educate one another and to bring additional information to the process, but to also reach out and educate the, the public. And, uh, and so I want to thank them for that because they've, they've really done a great job. The other thing about the, the you know uncertainty and, and not having necessarily uh, perfect information is that MLPA um, requires adaptive management. So while we're making decisions now based on the best readily available science that exists at this moment, um, that may change. In fact, it will change over time as we learn more about the ocean environment. And so the MLPA requires that adaptive management be a component of the long-term management program. And uh, we have a whole monitoring enterprise and system being set up to um, to be able to incorporate adaptive management into the long-term program. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Melissa, I wanted to follow up on that. With the adaptive management concept in, in mind, how will these um, new uh, protected areas interface with the existing ones? Are the existing ones really not a part of the discussion right now? Or how will those um, interplay with the, the new array of marine protected areas? Actually, that's where the conversation started. The, the conversation started with a, a profile of the study region and the existing MPAs and, and looking at how those existing MPAs do or don't meet the goals of the Act, the six goals that I referenced earlier. Mm-hmm. And so that's actually where we start each study region, and, and we, we develop a regional profile that we go out and gather all of the relevant information that we can get our hands on um, and, and put that into a single document and where there's actual data sets uh, those go into a GIS. I think for the north central coast, we have something like 150 or 160 different data sets that uh, are, are accessible to the to the stakeholder group for uh, helping to inform the the design process. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to the question about um, data and information available for the stakeholders, Fred and Irene, I'm curious, just from your perspective, what types of science information is just not there because we haven't explored that part yet. I mean, we've explored less than 1% of the ocean, and here we are trying to make these incredible decisions. I'm curious, from your perspectives, what information you're, you're lacking that would really help? Rena, go first. It's <laughs> a wonderful question, Jenny. You got, um, you've stumped me. I'm, I'm thinking about it. Um, I, a lot of new data has been collected for the process, so um, kudos to the state of California for designating funds to do that. So we're learning a lot more about habitats. Um, we're also... Um, Ooh, Irene, I think we're getting a little feedback. Are you on speakerphone? No, I'm not. Okay. But I'm hearing it, too, on my end. It just started. All right. We'll take a br- look at the break and see if we can fix that. Okay. Well, go ahead. Keep talking. All right. I'll try. Hopefully it's not too hard for you guys. 
Um, so, so there's a lot of information that we're learning, but there's still a lot of information when we talk about the wildlife, um, like the wildlife connections between wildlife, uh, when we talk about ecosystem protection. Um, there's still a lot of things that we're learning about, um, you know, the abundance of one species versus the abundance of another and how they interact. Um, we think we know those ecosystem connections um, in a general way, but the specifics are very complex, and I think as the more we study them, the more we learn. And so some of these um, kind of feedback mechanisms we may not learn about until later, and we see uh, how things work out. I mean, it's interesting to think about until, like, you know, 1995, the concept of ecosystem management was sort of like a new term that, like, people hadn't really thought of that much before. Things were very much focused on managing individual species and not really, and sort of finding out later what the, you know, the uh, outcome of that and how that affected lots of other species. And now it's, uh, it's amazing how much we don't know about the interactions between predator and prey, between uh, sea mammals and birds versus what they eat and how much of it they eat, and how all those different processes interact. And that's something that uh, there's a lot left to go on. But I agree with Melissa that in so many cases, we always wish we had more information. And the key really is is to really get as much out there as you can, work with what you have, and do the best you can. Great. Well, we're just coming up on the half hour, and um, we're going to take a short break. Uh, Melissa and Irina, I hope you'll stay with us on the line. And in just a few moments, we'll come back and continue talking. I'd like to talk about what draft plans are on the table right now and uh, the study areas a little bit. So please stay with us. You're listening to KWMR in Point Reyes Station and Bolinas. Mm-hmm. 